This morning, we're going to take a one-week break from the Gospel of John and look at a passage in Exodus, Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 8. And this is one of the most important passages in the entire Old Testament, really the entire Bible. It's a foundational passage that reveals who God is. It reveals God's nature and his character. And in fact, this passage is going to bring us full circle back to the Gospel of John, to John's prologue, as this Old Testament description of the character of God finds ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And here's why I want to talk about this, look at this passage together. A right understanding of God is required for right worship of him. If we want to worship God truly, we have to have an accurate understanding of who he is and what he's like. And this passage in Exodus is instructive, and it clears up popular misconceptions about the nature of God, particularly how God is revealed in the Old Testament. All of us likely are aware of a common popular caricature of that the Bible essentially has two different gods. The Old Testament God is mean, he's angry, he's full of violence and wrath, whereas Jesus is very nice. And various versions of this are touted by sometimes prominent public intellectuals, sometimes within the church. And all this is is a recycled form of what's called Marcionism, which was an ancient heresy soundly refuted by the church in the early second century. And likewise, our passage, Exodus 34, soundly refutes that caricature. The Bible doesn't allow for that kind of division or separation. If we rightly want to understand who Jesus is, we have to understand the Old Testament. So let me give you the context of Exodus 34, and then I'll read the passage. So the context is that God's people, the people of Israel, have been delivered out of slavery, out of Egypt, as God promised, God brought them up out of Egypt with many signs and wonders, and they arrive at Mount Sinai, and God completely envelops the mountain with fire and smoke, and he summons Moses up to meet with him at the top of the mountain. And Moses meets with God alone for 40 days and 40 nights, and he receives the Ten Commandments inscribed by the finger of God. And meanwhile, in what some scholars describe as adultery on one's wedding night, The people at the foot of the mountain convince Aaron to make for themselves this idol fashioned in the form of a golden calf. And what that is, is it's a complete rejection of God's deliverance. The Lord is the one who brought them up out of Egypt, but they're ascribing God's saving action to that calf. And they say, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So it's a deliberate misattribution of God's saving activity to this idol. And they celebrate with sacrilegious, distorted worship, feasting, revelry. Uh, It likely includes drunkenness and sexual immorality. And throughout the Bible, idol worship is closely linked with sexual immorality. And what happens from there is Moses steps in and he intercedes for the people. He pleads with God not to utterly destroy his people for the sake of God's glory and for the sake of the promise that God made to Abraham. And Moses' intercession sets up this biblical idea of a mediator, that we need a mediator who will stand between God and humanity. 
And the Bible identifies this mediator as Jesus. Jesus is the greater Moses. He is the only mediator between God and mankind. And so after this series of meetings that God has with God, God tells Moses that he's going to renew the covenant. And Moses asks to see God's glory. He says, show me your glory. And God responds and says, I will cause all my goodness to pass over you. So we should associate God's glory with his goodness. God tells Moses he's not going to see the fullness of his glory. He says, you won't see my face, but you will see my back, so to speak, as I pass over you and reveal my goodness, my glory. And so God commands Moses to go up again with new tablets. Uh, Moses had broken the first set. And God's glory is going to pass Moses by, and he's going to reveal himself to Moses. So that's the context of Exodus 34. Let me read our passage. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Moses immediately knelt low on the ground and worshiped. So earlier, I said this is one of the most important passages in the entire Old Testament. Why? Well, it reveals God's nature. It reveals his character. It's one of the most frequently cited verses in the entire Bible. So the Psalms and prophets repeatedly cite it, verse 6 and 7 in particular. It's cited over 30 times throughout the Bible. So we, we should think, this is important. For example, Psalm 145, verse 8 says, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and great in faithful love. It's one of many examples. One of the more interesting examples is found with the prophet Jonah, and Jonah's citation is a negative example. So Jonah despised the Ninevites, and he did not want God to show them mercy. So Jonah cites Exodus 34 as reason for why he fled Nineveh in disobedience to God. And he says, I knew that you were a God gracious and compassionate. It's like, Jonah, get a grip. Jonah, he cites this, and uh, he didn't want God to display his mercy, and that was part of God rebuking Jonah uh, because he needed to learn God's heart and God's compassion for these people. And so it's a significant text. And verse 6 begins with God proclaiming his divine name. And we might ask, what is the divine name? It's Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. It's the name that God revealed to Moses in the burning bush of Exodus chapter 3, I am who I am. And your English Bible will render that in small capital letters, the Lord. And what that is, is it's a stand-in for YHWH. So verse 6 begins with God proclaiming his name twice. 
the Lord, the Lord. And that occurs nowhere else in the Bible. So what should we make of that? I think it emphasizes God's utter uniqueness. There is only one true and living God, and it's this God, the Lord. There's no one else like him. There's no one else worthy of our worship. As the prophet Nehemiah says, there's only one great, mighty, awe-inspiring, covenant-keeping God, and his name is the Lord. And there are five key aspects to God's character that I want us to learn from this morning. I'm going to list them, and then we'll take them one by one. So first, God is merciful. Second, God is gracious. Third, God is patient, or if you like, long-suffering. Fourth, God is faithful. And fifth, God is righteous. So if you don't get them down, that's fine. We're going to go one at a time. So first, God is merciful. So verse 6 says, The Lord is a compassionate God. And that word compassion is picked up in other places in the New Testament where Paul instructs us to put on compassion. Or as old translations say, put on the bowels of mercy. And it's, it's a gutsy compassion. And we speak this way all the time. We think, oh, he's punched in the gut. Uh, emotions rise from this deep level inside of ourselves, from the heart. And the Bible will often use uh, the language of guts or inward parts. So compassion is this deep, tender love that arises from our hearts. So what does it mean then that God is compassionate? What is mercy? When we think about God's attributes, we have to keep in mind not, no one attribute is more important than another. So, for example, God's justice is not more important than, nor is it opposed to, God's love. So, classically, we say God is simple, which just means he's one. All of his attributes are perfectly one. So, you might think of like a diamond turning in the light and all of God's glorious attributes are reflecting different aspects of the unity of his perfection. So, when we think about God's mercy, what is it? I would say God's mercy is the goodness of God applied to those in misery. So, God's mercy is God's goodness in action. It's God's goodness displayed toward those who are lowly, those who are destitute, those who are miserable. So God's mercy is an expression of his goodness and love. So this passage teaches us that God is merciful. Second, God is gracious. Again, verse 6, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God. Contrary to caricatures of God in the Old Testament as angry and mean. If we go to the source ourselves, what does God say about himself? He says, I am a compassionate and gracious God. So what is grace? What does it mean that God is gracious? Well, similar to mercy, God's grace is God's goodness in action. 
It's God's goodness in action applied to a specific person or a situation. So God's grace is the goodness of God applied to those who deserve wrath, to those who deserve evil. God's grace is God's unmerited favor. And so Paul says, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. So we need God's grace, his saving grace applied to sinners like me, sinners like you, to bring us forgiveness, righteousness, new life together in Christ. And instead of death, we are given righteousness and life and peace. That's saving grace. And here's something important to note about grace and mercy. So God's grace and mercy is a voluntary free expression of his goodness and love. So when we think about God, we say God is love, God is holy, God is just, but he doesn't have to show his grace and mercy. That's the whole point. Grace is a lavish expression, a free expression, of his un- and it's undeserved. It's an expression of his goodness, which makes it all the more glorious. So God could choose not to show grace and mercy and still be completely justified in withholding it because he is holy, righteous, and just. And frankly, that's what should shock us in the narrative as we read the Exodus So the people of Israel have sinned grievously, and yet despite this, God reveals himself as merciful and gracious. Stephen Wellam is a a theologian who says, what's shocking is not that God judges our sin, instead it's that he chooses to display his grace. And we live in a culture, even some within the church, who are shocked at just the opposite. Uh, We're shocked at the idea that God judges sin. And that reveals how backwards we're thinking about this. If we're shocked at the idea that God judges sin, then really we have a deficient understanding of who God is. We have a deficient understanding of his holiness and his goodness. A, A deficient understanding of the nature of sin. We don't think of sin as egregious and evil as it is. So, none of this is about believing in a God who is angry and mean. The passage says the opposite. This is about properly understanding who God is as holy and righteous and good. And then from that goodness flows the reality that this God, the Lord, is also merciful and gracious. Third, God is patient or long-suffering. The Lord is slow to anger. And that phrase, slow to anger, is a Hebrew idiom that means long of nose or long in nostrils. It's kind of funny. God has a long nose. And the meaning is unclear, but you can get the gist. We think of nostrils flaring when someone's angry. Uh, You maybe take a deep breath when you're angry. And the idea would be that God is long of nose, then that means it takes a long time for him to blow out his anger through his nostrils. So Psalm 18.8 expresses this point. Uh, David describes God's nose as flaring at injustice. Smoke rose from his nostrils, consuming fire came from his mouth. 
coals were set ablaze by it. So God is slow to display his wrath. He's slow to anger. He's not a hothead. Why is God slow to anger? Why is God long-suffering? What's the purpose of God's slowness? The answer is that we would turn from our sin and trust him. Repentance. Paul says in Romans, do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Personal question for you this morning, where do you see God's patience at work in your life this week? Where have you seen God's patience in your relationships? And what would it mean for you not to despise God's patience? I think the point would be repent. Mess up, fess up, move on. When you recognize you're off track, get back on track quickly. Don't continue on with a lack of repentance, presuming on God's kindness. God is slow to anger because he wants to see us repent. He wants to see us turn from our sin and turn toward him and trust him. Fourth, God is faithful. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God abounding in faithful love. Some translations say steadfast love. And the Hebrew word there is hesed, which is God's covenant faithfulness. It's God's covenant love. God is the promise maker and the promise keeper. He is the covenant-keeping God. He's faithful even when Israel is his unfaithful covenant partner. He will remain faithful to his promises because he is the God who abounds in hesed. He is the God who abounds in faithful love. So this passage says God is rich in love. He is rich in kindness. He abounds in faithful love. And that's extended to verse 7 which says, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. So from generation to generation, God will be faithful to keep his covenant promise. This is the the word that's repeated over and over in Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. And Paul says in 2 Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God is faithful. And fifth, God is righteous. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth. The Hebrew word for truth is emet, So God abounds in faithful love and truth. Some translations say steadfast love and faithfulness. That's a bit redundant. I think truth is the better option. So to say that God abounds in faithful love and truth is to say that God abounds in righteousness. God is righteous. God is trustworthy. God is truthful. God abounds in truth because he is righteous. 
And I think we should recognize that this is not simply describing God's action as if we're just saying God acts righteously. That's, of course, that's true. But I think this is revealing something deeper about the nature of God. This verse is teaching us about his nature. God doesn't merely act righteous. He is righteous. He acts righteous because he is righteous. And so God is the ultimate standard of righteousness. And so this teaches us about God's nature. God is intrinsically righteous or just. God's justice is not something external to him. He is just. So where do I get that from this passage? Verse 7. God abounds in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Why? Why will God not leave the guilty unpunished? Is it because he's mean? Is it because he can't let go of grudges? No. It's because he's just. He's righteous. He abounds in faithful love and truth. And because God is good and holy and just, that means he has a zero-tolerance policy on evil. He's not going to let evil go unchecked in the world. And if God simply forgave without actually requiring payment for sin, that would not be justice. This became clear to me when I was on a one-link trip in Central Asia, and I was talking with one of my Muslim friends, and this was his analogy. He talked about his good deeds and his bad deeds being measured on this scale. And he said, as long as his good deeds outweighed the bad, then he would be okay. That's what God is concerned about. And I remember that conversation was so pivotal because it made clear the concept of God's intrinsic righteousness. So clear. So let's say you have more good deeds than bad. What is God supposed to do with this? Is he supposed to simply overlook it? And if he doesn't deal with it in some way, then he actually hasn't dealt with it. If he doesn't mete out his justice, he ceases to be just. And that would be a denial of himself which is something he's not going to do because God is faithful. So God's justice is different than his grace and mercy. So remember, God doesn't have to show grace and mercy. Those are voluntary expressions of his intrinsic goodness. So he can choose not to show grace or mercy, and he's still good. God's justice, however, is not like that. It's not voluntary. God is just. It's essential to him. So God can't relax the standard of his justice or righteousness because that would be a denial of himself. So let me say a brief word about the rest of verse 7. Bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Now, what's that about? Is this talking about some sort of generational curse? Are we punished for our parents' sins? 
No. I don't think that's what's being communicated. Rather, this is a statement about the consequences and the residual effects of sin. Sin doesn't just affect one individual or the one sinned against. There are repercussions of sin that can last for generations. I think that's what's being identified. But that is set in contrast to God's faithful love. So the consequences of human sin can have ripple effects for generations, but God's faithful love knows no limits. As the psalmist says, God's love endures forever. It extends from generation to generation. So this passage, this crucial passage, is one of the most cited verses in the entire Bible, and it teaches us some very important things about who God is in order that we can rightly worship him. So as I said, as we think about God's attributes, think of this beautiful diamond turning in the light, reflecting the diverse unity and beauty of God's perfection, the beauty and splendor of God's glory. Moses saw God's glory, and it was glorious, but as you follow the storyline of the Bible, we're being pointed the entire way to a greater glory. As I said, this passage reveals that God's glory is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. The author of Hebrews says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature. So Exodus 34 is actually quoted in the Gospel of John in the prologue. And there we read John 1.14 of Jesus. It says, the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that phrase, full of grace and truth, is an allusion to Exodus 34, where it says God is abounding in faithful love and truth. So sometimes the Greek word love is translated grace. So this, John is saying Jesus is the greater glory that Moses got a glimpse of. Jesus perfectly displays the fullness of the glory of God so that we can rightly say of Jesus, he is the great, mighty, awe-inspiring, covenant-keeping God. And we see all of these attributes that we've talked about this morning. We see all of them displayed on the work of Christ on the cross. We see Jesus embody the grace, the mercy, the patience, the steadfast love, the righteousness of God are on display at the cross. At the cross, God's justice is displayed alongside his grace and mercy. The cross of Christ is the place where God's justice and his mercy meet. And Jesus dies in our place as our substitute, bearing the penalty of our sin, and thereby he secures for us forgiveness, adoption, and glory as we are risen together with him. And it's through faith in him that his righteousness, think of that intrinsic righteousness of God, is imputed or given to us. That's justification by faith 
enabling us to enjoy covenant relationship with him forever. Now, what's the proper response to that glorious truth? How should we respond as we reflect on God's glory and the fullness of God's glory displayed in Christ? Well, let's look at Moses. Verse 8, Moses immediately knelt low on the ground and worshiped. Moses' response to God's glory passing over him was to bow in humble worship. And that's in contrast to the people of Israel earlier who at the foot of the mountain made this false god according to their own terms. They wanted this god that they could control. And as I've reflected on this passage this week, I've wrestled with a difficult and a challenging question that I want to put before you. Am I worshiping God according to my terms, or am I worshiping God as he has revealed himself? We don't worship Jesus only according to our terms. If Jesus is Lord, and he is, then we worship him as he's revealed to us in the Bible. And what does the Bible reveal to us? That there is only one true and living triune God. He's the great, mighty, awe-inspiring, covenant-keeping God who took on human flesh to be our Redeemer, to save us from our sin and win us new life together with him. Let us be like Moses and bow in worship. Let me pray for us and we'll continue in worship together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us so that we can know you. Thank you for revealing yourself to us as a God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. Thank you for sending your Son, who is the fullness of that glory. May we rightly respond in worship.